Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 84. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. Never mind. It is a truth universally acknowledged. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. We have reached a milestone with this podcast, The End of Treasure Island, which Steve will read for you in a bit. I'm also nearing the end of Winds of Wyoming in that reading, uh, but we have a few more chapters to go. And in this podcast, I'll not only read another section of Winds of Wyoming, but we'll also read from uh, Roger Pond and from Erlene Klein. And yes, here is the last chapter of Treasure Island called And Last. And remember where we left off, they had found the gold where it had been stored, stockpiled already. Now we see what's going to happen at the end. The next morning we fell early to work, for the transportation of this great mass of gold near a mile by land to the beach, and thence three miles by boat to the Hispaniola, was a considerable task for so small a number of workmen. The three fellows still abroad upon the island did not greatly trouble us. A single sentry on the shoulder of the hill was sufficient to ensure us against any sudden onslaught and we thought, besides, they had had more than enough of fighting. Therefore the work was pushed on briskly. Gray and Ben Gunn came and went with the boat, while the rest, during their absences, piled treasure on the beach. Two of the bars, slung in a rope's end, made a good load for a grown man, one that he was glad to walk slowly with. For my part, as I was not much used at carrying... I was kept busy all day in the cave, packing the minted money into bread bags. It was a strange collection, like Billy Bones's hoard for the diversity of coinage, but so much larger and so much more varied that I think I never had more pleasure than in sorting them. English, French, Spanish, Portuguese, Georges and Louises, doubloons and double guineas, and moidors and sequins, the pictures of all the kings of Europe for the last hundred years, strange oriental pieces stamped with what looked like wisps of string or bits of spider's web, round pieces and square pieces, and pieces bored through the middle as if to wear them round your neck. Nearly every variety of money in the world must, I think, have found a place in that collection. And for number, I am sure they were like autumn leaves, so that my back ached with stooping and my fingers with sorting them out. Day after day this work went on, by every evening if fortune had been stowed aboard. But there was another fortune waiting for the morrow, and all this time we heard nothing of the three surviving mutineers. At last, I think it was on the third night, the doctor and I were strolling on the shoulder of the hill where it overlooks the lowlands of the isle, when... From out the thick darkness below, the wind brought us a noise between shrieking and singing. It was only a snatch that reached our ears, followed by the former silence. Heaven forgive them, said the doctor. 
"'Tis the mutineers!' "'All drunk, sir,' struck in the voice of Silver from behind us. Silver, I should say, was allowed his entire liberty, and in spite of daily rebuffs, seemed to regard himself once more as quite a privileged and friendly dependent. Indeed, it was remarkable how well he bore these slights, and with what unwearying politeness he kept on trying to ingratiate himself with all. Yet, I think, none treated him better than a dog, unless it was Ben Gunn, who was still terribly afraid of his old quartermaster, or myself, who had really something to thank him for, although, for that matter, I suppose I had reason to think even worse of him than anybody else, for I had seen him meditating a fresh treachery upon the plateau. Accordingly, it was pretty gruffly that the doctor answered him. Drunk or raving, said he. Right you were, sir, replied Silver, and precious little odds which, to you and me. I suppose you would hardly ask me to call you a humane man, returned the doctor with a sneer, and so my feelings may surprise you, Master Silver. But if I were sure they were raving, as I am morally certain one, at least, one of them is down with fever, I should leave this camp, and at whatever risk to my own carcass, take them the assistance of my skill. Ask your pardon, sir. You would be very wrong, quoth Silver. You would lose your precious life, and you may lay to that. I'm on your side now, hand in glove, and I shouldn't wish for to see the party weakened, let alone yourself, seeing as I know what I owes you. But these men down there, they couldn't keep their word, no, not supposing they wished to. And what's more, they couldn't believe as you could. No, said the doctor, you're the man to keep your word, we know that. Well, that was about the last news we had of the three pirates. Only once we heard a gunshot a great way off, and supposed them to be hunting. A council was held, and it was decided that we must desert them on the island, to the huge glee, I must say, of Ben Gunn, and with the strong approval of Gray. We left a good stock of powder and shot, the bulk of the salt goat, a few medicines, and some other necessaries, tools, clothing, a spare sail, a fathom or two of rope, and by the particular desire of the doctor, a handsome present of tobacco. That was about our last doing on the island. Before that, we had got the treasure stowed, and had shipped enough water and the remainder of the goat meat, in case of any distress. And at last, one fine morning, we weighed anchor, which was about all that we could manage, and stood out of North Inlet, the same colors flying that the captain had flown and fought under at the Palisade. The three fellows must have been watching us closer than we thought for, as we soon had proved. For, coming through the narrows, we had to lie very near the southern point, and there we saw all three of them kneeling together on a spit of sand, with their arms raised in supplication. It went to all our hearts, I think, to leave them in that wretched state, but we could not risk another mutiny, and to take them home for the gibbet would have been a cruel sort of kindness. The doctor hailed them and told them of the stores we had left and where they were to find them, but they continued to call us by name and appealed to us, for God's sake, to be merciful and not leave them to die in such a place. At last, seeing the ship still bore on her course, and was now swiftly drawing out of earshot, one of them, I know not which it was, leapt to his feet with a hoarse cry, 
whipped his musket to his shoulder, and sent a shot whistling over Silver's head and through the mainsail. After that, we kept under cover of the bulwarks, and when next I looked out, they had disappeared from the spit, and the spit itself had almost melted out of sight in the growing distance. That was, at least, the end of that, and before noon, to my inexpressible joy, the highest rock of Treasure Island had sunk into the blue round of sea. We were so short of men that everyone on board had to bear a hand, only the captain lying on a mattress in the stern and giving his orders, for, though greatly recovered, he was still in want of quiet. We later head for the nearest port in Spanish America, for we could not risk the voyage home without fresh hands, and as it was, what with baffling winds and a couple of fresh gales, we were all worn out before we reached it. It was just at sundown when we cast anchor in a most beautiful landlocked gulf and were immediately surrounded by shoreboats full of Negroes and Mexican Indians and half-bloods selling fruits and vegetables and offering to dive for bits of money. The sight of so many good-humored faces, especially the blacks, the taste of tropical fruits, and above all, the lights that began to shine in the town made a most charming contrast to our dark and bloody sojourn on the island and the doctor and the squire, taking me along with them, went ashore to pass the early part of the night. Here they met the captain of an English man-of-war, fell in talk with him, went on board his ship, and in short, had so agreeable a time that day was breaking when we came alongside the Hispaniola. Ben Gunn was on deck alone, and as soon as we came on board, he began with wonderful contortions to make us a confession. Silver was gone. The maroon had connived at his escape in a shoreboat some hours ago, and he now assured us he had only done so to preserve our lives, which would certainly have been forfeit if that man with the one leg had stayed aboard. But this was not all. The sea cook had not gone empty-handed. He had cut through a bulkhead unobserved and had removed one of the sacks of coin worth perhaps three or four hundred guineas to help him on his further wanderings. I think we were all pleased to be so cheaply quit of him. Well, to make a long story short, we got a few hands on board, made a good cruise home, and the Hispaniola reached Bristol just as Mr. Blandley was beginning to think of fitting out her consort. Five men only of those who had sailed returned with her. Drink and the devil had done for the rest, with a vengeance. Although, to be sure, we were not quite in so bad a case as that other ship they sang about. With one man of her crew alive, what put to sea with seventy-five. All of us had an ample share of the treasure, and used it wisely or foolishly, according to our natures. Captain Smollett is now retired from the sea. Gray not only saved his money, but being suddenly smit with the desire to rise, also studied his profession and he is now mate and part owner of a fine, full-rigged ship, married besides, and the father of a family. As for Ben Gunn, he got a thousand pounds, which he spent or lost in three weeks, or, to be more exact, in nineteen days, for he was back begging on the twentieth. Then he was given a lodge to keep, exactly as he had feared upon the island, and he still lives a great favorite though something of a butt with the country boys and a notable singer in church on Sundays and saints' days. Of silver we have heard no more. 
that formidable seafaring man with one leg has at last gone clean out of my life. But I dare say he met his old negress and perhaps still lives in comfort with her in Captain Flint. It is to be hoped so, I suppose, for his chances of comfort in another world are very small. The bar silver and the arms still lie, for all that I know, where Flint buried them, and certainly they shall lie there for me. Oxen and wain ropes would not bring me back again to that accursed island, and the worst dreams that ever I have are when I hear the surf booming about its coasts, or start upright in bed with the sharp voice of Captain Flint still ringing in my ears. Pieces of eight! Pieces of eight! Reading from Winds of Wyoming, Chapter 26 When Kate awoke the next morning, the sun was above the trees. She found Dimple on her knees in the garden pulling weeds. Good morning, Dimple. I suppose you were up at five as usual. Dimple sat back on her heels. I've never been one to sleep in, especially on such a beautiful morning. She grabbed her hoe and used it to pull herself upright. How about some brunch? I had a glass of juice earlier with a banana, but my stomach is ready for a refill. Oh, look, Dimple, Kate pointed at the opposite end of the garden. A bunny with babies. Aren't they cute? Cute, my foot. Dimple's voice squeaked. Brandishing the hoe, she hobbled between the rows as fast as her arthritic feet allowed, her braid dancing between her shoulders. My candles won't stand a chance. She shook the hoe at the little balls of brown fur. Beat it, you thieving critters. Mama Rabbit looked at the human scarecrow, blinked and herded her brood under the fence and into the bushes. Dimple dropped the hoe to the ground and rested her forehead on the handle. Are you okay? Kate tried not to laugh. Yes, her reply was muffled. I'm too old to chase rabbits. Maybe I should get a dog. She raised her head. But a dog would dig holes in the garden. They shared a simple meal of blueberry muffins, fruit, and green tea on the patio. I'm sorry about the rabbits. Kate peeled a mandarin orange. There must be something you can do to discourage them. I've tried the easy solutions, Dimple said, like sprinkling vinegar and hot pepper flakes around the plants. Those may work, but every time it rains or I water the garden, they're washed into the ground. She sliced a square of butter and spread it on her muffin. I need to get serious about the battle. What does that entail? Human hair, dried blood, fox urine. Kate wrinkled her nose. Sounds like a witch's potion to me. They do seem rather medieval. Dimple tilted her head, a twinkle in her eye. But they're honest-to-goodness remedies, sold in the garden supply catalogs. The telephone rang inside the house. That's probably Sheriff Gilmer, returning my call. Dimple hurried to answer it. Kate frowned. Why did Dimple call the sheriff? Did last night's confession scare her? She set the orange peel at the side of her plate. Maybe her hostess wanted out of the house arrest deal. Dimple slid the screen door open, hobbled across the patio, and lowered herself into a chair. Kate studied the elderly woman's eyes, searching for a hint of her future. Good news, Kate. Dimple picked up her teacup. 
I told the sheriff about the phone call. He said he'll add my complaint to Gerald Ramsey's file. She swallowed a sip of tea. Even without positive proof of who the caller was, he can rescind his phone privileges. He said he expects Ramsey to remain incarcerated for several more weeks, if not months. Plus, wait a minute, Kate lifted her chin. Are you telling me Ramsey is still in jail? Yes, county jail in Rollins. Kate sat back, surprised he hadn't manipulated his way out by now. The sheriff also told me Nebraska wants to go with your friend when Wyoming is finished with him. Something about a dead buffalo in their state reserve. Kate stirred honey into her tea. The sheriff promised to let us know the moment Mr. Ramsey is released. In the meantime, we can relax. That's nice, the sheriff Gilmer, Kate said, but I don't think I'll let my guard down. Jerry Ramsey will find a way to get to me sooner or later. Mike shoved his hands into his pockets, reining in the urge to punch his fist through the wall. You said you wouldn't give us more than we can handle, God. In case you hadn't noticed, this is over the top. Laura tapped her fingernails on the counter. Thank you, Mike. For what? Her face looked like she hadn't seen sunshine all summer. For kicking Tara out, I was too shocked to do anything but stand here like a bump on a log. You don't know how close I came to hitting her. He walked over to his mom. The next time she steps foot onto the WP, we call the sheriff. I don't know what's up with her, but she's off her rocker. Why did she get the idea this is her ranch? More craziness, I guess. What if it turns out she's correct about Kate? I didn't do a background check because we've never required them. Your dad always said we should trust God to guide us to the right employees. Besides, in Kate's case, she's doing an internship. We had letters of recommendation from two of her professors. Kate told me she had a difficult past, but this is something else. Mike thought of Kate's warm eyes and gentle smile. I know anything is possible, especially considering the stolen cash. But it's hard to think. His voice trailed off. There's only one way to find out for sure. What's that? Asked Kate. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Laura tapped her fingernails on the countertop. We should let the sheriff do the asking. She straightened, massaging her shoulders. Did you see that huge diamond on Tara's left hand? Couldn't miss it. Is she engaged? Yep. That's amazing. Anybody I know? He nodded. Uh-huh. Who? Me, according to Tara. After a long moment, Laura said, I hope you're joking. Mike glanced at his mom. Her face had drained further of color. I wish it was a joke. I told you she's crazy. Where did she get the ring? He shrugged. All I know is that Tara and Todd Hughes are planning a Hughes-Duncan wedding without input from the Duncans. He told her about the dining hall scene and how he figured Tara had finally gotten the message that he wasn't interested in marriage. Laura cocked her head. It's all beginning to make sense. Doesn't make a lick of sense to me. When your dad was alive, Todd Hughes called five or six times a year with an offer to buy our place, or he'd show up somewhere on the ranch. Your dad thought it a bit spooky how the man could find him alone, 
whether he was in the barn, moving cattle, or fixing fence. He always refused Todd's offers, but that didn't stop the man from trying. Mike remembered his dad talking about the time he'd walked out of a stall to find Todd leaning against a wall, waiting for him. Why does he want our property? His ranch is plenty big. Almost 75,000 acres, I've heard. That's what we always asked. Why? She brushed hair from her face. Since your dad died, Todd's been on my case to sell. He's called four or five times. I tell him no thanks and hang up. The last time, he said something about him being a widower, and now that I'm a widow and we share a property boundary, we should get together. I slammed the phone down before he could finish. She shivered. Gives me the willies to think about it. Like father, like daughter, Mike wrapped his knuckles on the countertop. Next time he calls, hand the phone to me. He walked to the door. Better go see if I can accomplish something before any more fires break out around here. Fires? On the ranch? The radio on Mike's belt hissed alive. Hey, Duncan, can you hear me? He lifted the two-way. Clinton was evidently still mad. After their argument, his foreman had quit calling him bossman. I hear you, Clint. Got an SOS down at the bison pasture. Mike pointed the antenna at his mom. Should have known. Another fire. Cherry Ramsey ate by himself, pretending to ignore the inmates at the other end of the table. Hey, Anki, where you get your hair done? AutoZone? With hair like that, you ought to sit with the beaners. They ridiculed him for attacking a woman in a hospital bed and hooted with laughter after each insult. He glanced at a guard. How he wished he was on the other side of the billy club. The things he'd do to his tormentors. County jail brought memories of his years at St. Agathus. It wasn't only the pig swill they fed him. Once again, he was the outsider. But he'd found ways to get even at the orphanage, and he'd do the same here. Snickering. He stabbed at the dry mound of instant potatoes and watched the watery gravy run into the channels. Hey, Anki, what you laughing at? Something stupid, I bet. The dark, pupilless eyes of the big man seated on the opposite bench flickered from Ramsey to the guard, across the other inmates in the cafeteria, and back again. Who's the broad? Ramsey returned to his potatoes. I said. Who's the broad you talked to during visitation? A friend. Next time, you be sure to introduce your friend to me. Such a fine woman shouldn't be wasting her time on a pansy like you. The other men howled as if that was the funniest joke they'd ever heard. Ramsey picked up his plate and walked to the slop bucket. The inmates were as sickening as the food. He scraped his plate and joined the line to return to the cells. Nielsen would pay for every miserable moment he spent in this hellhole. He rubbed at the scars her fingernails had left on his wrist. He would get revenge, and it would be sweet. A voice whispered in his ear. What's her name? Ramsey spun around. The man who had mocked him stood directly behind him. Me and her, he murmured. We'll make beautiful music together. I'll give her what you can't. Ramsey shoved the man, knocking him into the inmate behind him in a circle form. Then the big man, bigger than he'd realized was coming at him, a glint in his eye and in his hand.
I'm reading from Roger Pond's book, Take the Kids Fishing, They're Better Than Worms. Let the cat get it. I don't know what causes it, but there's something about sales calls that drives me crazy. The calls themselves don't bother me so much, but I'm always embarrassed by the answers I give them. Last week, Jennifer called to say, I'm calling to tell you about our new voice messaging service you can receive free for the next 30 days. Do you understand how our voice messaging service will help you with your calls? I think so, but we don't want to do it, I said. How do you handle your calls when you're away from the phone? She asked quickly. We have several ways, I told her. Thanks for calling. Bye. I think so, but we don't want to do it. We have several ways. What a dumb set of answers. You would think that a person who has been through high school, college, numerous county fairs, and a couple of goat ropings could come up with something better than that. Every time I get one of those calls, I hang up thinking, why did I say that? My goal is to get rid of them quickly. Still, we have several ways is a darned poor response. There are a million things a person could say when someone asks if we understand their new phone service. We might say, Duh, I don't know. Maybe you should send me a letter or something. Better yet, I could state, Thank you for calling Roger Pond. This is his bleeping message machine. Please leave your name and number after the bleep. Bleep! If you would like to speak to a real person, you could hang on the line until one happens by. Or you may wish to call another number and see who you get. Bleep! When Jennifer asks how I handle calls when I'm away from the phone, I could say, What? You mean people call me when I'm not here? I should have told her, I let the dog get the phone when I'm away. Or, Our cat loves messages. You want to talk to her? How about, If it weren't for folks like you, we wouldn't have to answer the phone so often. But instead, I say something like, we have several ways. I'll be ready next time, though. Next time AT&T or MCI calls, I'll be prepared for them, too. I'm making a list. When they mention their friends and family program, I'll tell them, I don't have any friends and my family won't talk to me. If they offer me $100 to switch companies, I'll say, I can't take money from strangers. When they ask how many phones we have, I'll say, I don't know. I only use one at a time. Uh Uh-oh, the phone's ringing. It's them. I know it's them. Where's my list? Where's the list? Maybe I'll just let the cat get it. About Treasure Island, just a heads up, this was written before political correctness influenced our society. About Roger Pond, you can tell this is dated. Uh, The copyright on the book is 2001, and for those of you who can remember what he's talking about, you'll know it was true, but it's not that way anymore. From Erlene Klein's book, The Ways of the Lord, a 365-day 
journey, I'll be reading an entry that's titled, All Our Needs. My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.19 How often I have laid today's promise out before the Lord, like a blank check, and waited for him to fill it in for all my needs at the moment, not just part of my need. Because it had been two years since Dan and I had seen our grandchildren in Wisconsin, we set a goal of flying back for a visit. A grocery store chain in Wisconsin offered coupons to fly on Northwest Airlines for every $50 worth of groceries purchased. Amy, one of my daycare mothers, brought us back two coupons after her trip home to Milwaukee in April. That would help. The plane tickets had to be purchased by June 30. A check for some of my freelance writing would buy one, and I expected to receive the payment by the deadline. Since my husband's surgery, bills had finally been paid, the money set aside for medical bills would possibly be enough to buy the other ticket. Then on Mother's Day, our pastor handed my husband, Dan, an envelope. When we opened it later, we were amazed to find ten $100 bills. We had no idea who gave such a timely gift but we went out the next weekend and bought our plane tickets to Wisconsin. Once again, God had more than met our needs. What he has done for us, he can do for you. Her insight is, God is faithful to keep his promise to meet, not part, but all of our needs. You can count on it. Roger Pond's goal was to think of better ways to answer the phone, or, well, at least when sales calls came in. Here are a few quotes about goals. What you get by achieving your goals is not as important as what you become by achieving your goals. Zig Ziglar. Epictetus said, First say to yourself what you would be, and then do what you have to do. Brian Tracy If you raise your children to feel that they can accomplish any goal or task they decide upon, you will have succeeded as a parent, and you will have given your children the greatest of all blessings. And last is Helen Keller. It is for us to pray not for tasks equal to our powers, but for powers equal to our tasks, to go forward with a great desire forever beating at the door of our hearts as we travel toward our distant goal. And that takes us out. Hope you meet your goals this week. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckylyles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckylyles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.